You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little man. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the Call me Mr. Boy's best friend. Oh, you have no style. You can bark all day, little dog. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. I volunteered for a cancer foundation on the Paramount lot. And while I was driving there, I was feeling a little nostalgic because I just finished editing last week's episode. So I turned on the Paramount episode I did a bajillion years ago, like four years ago, which I cannot believe I've been doing this for four years. And I think it was like my fourth episode overall, the Paramount episode. And I totally forgot. I used to do that weird whisper voice before basically just doing my phone voice. If you were curious, this also isn't exactly how I sound in real life. Uh, This is more of like an augmented phone voice. This is way easier to maintain for an hour of recording versus the uh, whisper one that I used to do. That's not how it sounded, but it's not not how it sounded. Anyway, this week on Movie Theater Movie Reviews, we've got Talk To Me. Talk To Me is an Australian independent horror movie with high critical reviews. And for the first time in a long time, I actually agree with the critics on a horror movie. Usually when they're like 95, 96, 97, I don't think this one's that high, but it is in the positive. It's always like those movies that are like... The Witch, or I wasn't a big fan of Babadook, or uh, It Follows. It's the post-horror stuff. I'm not a huge post-horror person, but those are always the ones that critics are like, it's the best thing ever. It's I, I can't stand it. I'm an old school horror person, and this is definitely that. This film is pretty damn scary and has a great cast. If you haven't heard of it, uh, the film deals with a group of young friends who come into contact with a ceramic hand that allows them to communicate with the dead. The film is a pretty clear allegory for like the danger of internet trends, but it's done very well. It's it's a wild ride. I, I highly recommend it. I had weird dreams for days over it. And it's been a while since a horror movie like legit scared me. I don't want to hype it up too much and uh, ruin anybody's experience or have anybody go in with too high expectations. And now, <laughs> strike updates. I'm recording this late Friday night. Just to give you a sense of a timeline as to when where this information is coming from, because some of the stuff can change daily. Uh, but yeah, the actors, they're on strike for the first time since 1986, not counting the commercial actor strikes. Those were a section of the acting body. This is this is the, all of them. I was up until midnight on Wednesday writing some sections of this episode while anxiously checking the social medias and the trade papers, just essentially just counting down to what I was pretty sure was going to happen, which is that they were going to go on strike. Talks broke down right at the end of the contract extension period. They worked all the way up until midnight on the 12th, but a deal could not be met. And now it looks like there's going to be another long strike ahead of us. And the drama is getting high. 
I don't know how far this news carried outside of the entertainment industry, but there was also a Deadline article that came out this week, which is an online, I don't know if you can call Deadline a trade site, but it's 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 akin to Variety and The Hollywood Reporter. Let's just call it a trade a trade site. And they quoted a anonymous studio head who basically said that the studios are planning on stretching out the strikes until everybody in the unions, basically the, the weakest members of the unions who these deals will most directly benefit, go broke. And then people start losing their homes and apartments. Basically, they're going to treat that as like a wake up call, like you can't do this without us type situation. Bob Iger, the head of Disney, just to make things even rosier, also went on the news to say what the writers and the actors were demanding was, quote, unreasonable, which is always, you know, a great way to rile up people who think that you're being unreasonable. So I'm sure the gates of Disney are going to be a party next week. So right now, it seems like everyone is really pissed off at each other. Well, not seems. It's they're pissed off at each other. And unless pressured by their members on either side, whether it's um, the actors, the writers or the AMPTP, I don't think anyone's going back to the table anytime soon. I think they're just going to let the actors and the writers just go. They're literally going to try and smoke them out. And the actors and the writers are hoping that all these months without new content coming will affect studios' bottom lines. Only problem with that is... Streaming is still a thing and there's 120 plus years of content that people have access to quite easily compared to the last time a major Hollywood strike happened. So uh, it's it's going to be interesting. This, I mean, it will be, you know, they keep throwing around the word historic and people throw that word around too much these days, but it actually might be because this is going to be a pretty big changing point. What with the pandemic and streaming and all the things It's it's going to I think it's going to get dirtier. And my my guess that this was going to be a short strike was so far off. This is going to this is probably going to get real nasty in the next couple of months. Also, it's if you are a someone who's on the picket lines right now, it is an oven outside right now in Los Angeles. So Godspeed to those who are picketing and remember to drink some water. That's very important. And uh, wear sunscreen and a hat. And that's the only advice I can give from my zero picket line experience. But that is that's that's the strike news for this week. So now on to this week's topic. This week, we're going back to several of the previous topics covered in this podcast to look at some echoes in time that some believe are still reverberating to this day. In non-flowery language, hauntings. I'm telling you a bunch of ghost stories today, and it's not even October, but it is spooky season. If you know, you know. Now, every corner of Tinseltown is haunted by somebody, it seems, so I just decided to narrow it down to episodes we've already done. It's stuff y'all are already familiar with, or at least those of you who've listened to every episode are probably familiar with. And that way we can tell a lot of ghost stories in a very short amount of time. If you're a uh, buffet listener, that's fine too. I'm happy you're here. But I will have a link in the show notes if any of this strikes your fancy. Hopefully I remember to do that before this episode goes live on Sunday. If not, I'll definitely have it done this week. It's just me and sometimes I get a little bit behind schedule with stuff. But I'll have every episode whose topic gets covered today. There will be in the show notes a link for you to listen to it. So let's get in this hodgepodge episode on some of the most famous hauntings involving famous places and celebrities. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime.
addition to that whole urban legend involving the fact that his head is cryogenically frozen somewhere, spoiler alert, it's not, there are several alleged hauntings that involve Walt Disney and the places that he loved in Southern California. It is believed that several ghosts actually haunt Disneyland, one of them being Walt himself, whom we covered all the way back in November 2020. Walt had loved trains during his time on this mortal plane, and one former cast member claims that he's still riding the rails in the afterlife, specifically on the Disneyland Railroad, which circles the entire park. According to that same cast member, there is a phantom train known as Walt's Train internally, which picks up on the train command station's radar even after all the earthbound trains have been put to sleep for the night. Walt's also been spotted in Fantasyland, on the Haunted Mansion, and in his old apartment above the fire station. One of his calling cards is the smell of fresh cigarette smoke. So the next time you're at Disneyland and you smell some phantom cigarette smoke, first, check to make sure you're not near one of the smoking sections. They, I believe, still exist. And if you don't see one, well, you may be in the presence of Walt Disney. Or, you know, somebody sneaking a cheeky ciggy. The Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel is impossible to miss when driving down Hollywood Boulevard. The hotel is located right in the middle of the most touristy area of town and is nearly identical to what it looked like when it opened in 1927, though that is mostly thanks to a huge renovation project in the 80s after a former owner gutted it of its iconic architecture in the 1950s. The Roosevelt serves as a reminder of the opulence of Hollywood during the late silent era. Stepping through the doors is to step nearly 100 years into the past. The hotel was financed by Louis B. Mayer, Mary Pickford, and Sid Grauman, was named after President Theodore Roosevelt, and cost $2.5 million to construct. The first Academy Awards ceremony took place in the hotel's Blossom Ballroom, and Marilyn Monroe lived in one of the cabanas at the hotel for two years while trying to make a career as a model. Clark Gable and Carol Lombard began their relationship here, and their favorite suite is named after them. Over the decades, countless members of the Hollywood community, both big and small, have darkened the doorways of this hotel. Many subjects that I have covered in this podcast over the years have either stayed at, taken meetings, or experienced career highs in this historic hotel. And according to some, many never left. Spectres began being spotted in 1984 after Radisson had acquired the hotel and spent $35 million to renovate it back to the hotel's former glory using photographs and the hotel's original blueprints. It seems that this restoration acted as a calling card to the beyond. A male entity, possibly an actor from back in the 1920s, allegedly hangs out around the Blossom Ballroom while dressed in a tuxedo as if attending an event. According to Psychics, he was an attendee and, some claim, nominee of the first Academy Awards, reliving a high point of his career. The ballroom is also a preferred haunt spot of another tuxedo-clad ghost who is often heard playing the piano. Marilyn Monroe, who was covered in February 2021, is probably the most famous ghost to haunt the hotel and has been seen several places within it, including the Blossom Ballroom. The most infamous legend involving her ghost circulates around a mirror that used to be in her suite. According to the legend, Marilyn's ghost still checks her appearance in that mirror and her presence was so frequent that it had to be removed from her suite because it was freaking out the living hotel guests. 
According to a former member of the cleaning staff who was cleaning the tall framed mirror, which was at this point located in the general manager's office, she saw, quote, the reflection of a blonde girl right where her hand was dusting. The cleaning woman looked behind her to find no one there and was shocked to turn back to the mirror and see that blonde woman was still checking her appearance in the mirror. She did not say at the time that this individual was Marilyn Monroe, but the manager later told her that the mirror had come from the star's former suite near the pool, cementing the legend in the process. There are other versions of this story as well and how this rumor that Marilyn haunts the mirror came to be, which of course brings into question the validity of this story, but it's a ghost story. We're covering ghost stories this week. How reliable is any of this, honestly? We're taking a slight break from facts this month, but I just thought I would mention that. And while we're on Marilyn, she has also been rumored to haunt her home in Brentwood, which has at least been partially torn down due to a remodel a few years ago, as is her dog who has been quote-unquote heard crying for its deceased owner. Hippodrome on the Santa Monica Pier is another rumored spot Marilyn haunts. There are reports of her showing up in mirrors there as well. As the legend goes, if you visit the Hippodrome late at night and watch the mirrors on the carousel, you can catch a glimpse of Marilyn sitting on her favorite bench near a gift shop. Honestly, damn near everywhere Marilyn Monroe went in her life, she is rumored to haunt in her death. There are several other ghosts that allegedly haunt the Hollywood Roosevelt, but we've not spent time with them on this podcast. So let's see who else we've covered on this podcast who stayed after they left the earthly party. In March of 2021, we covered the Tate-LaBianca murders that permanently scarred the carefree and radical existence Hollywood had experienced throughout the 1960s. Sharon Tate was a 26-year-old actress on the rise when she was struck down by the Manson family, but if you believe the legend, she had a premonition that this would be her fate years before it happened. At the time this story takes place, Sharon was dating Jay Sebring, a men's hairstylist to the stars, whom would also die that fateful night in August 1969. Sebring had purchased an incredible craftsman-style home in the canyon, as many people did back then, which had previously been owned by actress Jean Harlow and her director husband, Paul Byrne. Byrne likely died by suicide in 1932, and Harlow died tragically from uremia in 1937 at the age of 26, which was the same age Sharon was when she was murdered, which people like to allude means it was preordained or something for the story that's about to come, you'll see. But yeah, it is this connection by which people believe that the ghost of Harlow, or perhaps even Byrne, may have tried to warn Sharon of her impending doom. According to the story, which was allegedly relayed to interviewer Dick Kleiner of Fate magazine in 1968, but not published until 1970 after her death, Sharon woke up in the middle of the night and found the specter of a strange small man in her bedroom. Frightened, she ran out of the room and down the stairs where she saw another apparition tied to the staircase with his or her throat slashed. Sharon ran past this gory sight into the living room in search of a strong beverage. After said strong beverage, she got the urge to tear the wallpaper along the base of the bar, revealing a copper base underneath. When she returned upstairs past both the slit throat person at the staircase and the creepy little man who was now pacing between the hallway and the bed, Sharon returned to sleep. The next morning, she initially brushed the whole thing off as a bad dream. That was until she saw the ripped wallpaper. 
The article, of course, goes on to speculate that the encounter wasn't a dream, but rather a premonition predicting her and Sebring's horrific fate. Sharon's family and friends have continuously denied that this event took place. For what it's worth, the current owners have reported no paranormal activity. We covered the life and tragic death of actress Peg Entwistle all the way back in June 2021. Peg was a talented actress of the stage who desperately tried to break into the pictures but never quite succeeded. Her life came to a horrific end when she leapt off the H of the Hollywood sign in September 1932, the physical embodiment perched on the hill above the family home of the dreams that never came true. There have been many sightings and sensing of Peg since her untimely demise. The most common phenomena reported is the smell of gardenia perfume, which was allegedly one of Peg's favorites. The area around the sign is a popular hiking spot. Technically, you're not supposed to actually be able to get to the sign anymore because of what Peg did, but people still find ways to get up close and personal with the Hollywood sign. These daring rule breakers from time to time, as well as those hiking the approved trails, have reported to have caught a glimpse of Peg and Whistle. The accounts are all about the same. Peg is always in the garb of the day, likely the outfit she died in, wearing a forlorn and confused expression, is either walking on the path or floating on the hill, and is often accompanied by her favorite scent. According to those who claim to have seen her, she is most often glimpsed on foggy evenings. Now, I love a good ghost story as much as the next person, but foggy conditions aren't the best for positive identifications, so not the most convincing story for me, alas. But whatever the case, if you're hiking in the Lake Hollywood area and catch the smell of gardenias, look around. You might see a 1930s starlet recreating the final steps that resulted in her demise. Years after the death of her mother, Joan, and the publishing of the book Mommy Dearest, which tarnished the actress's legacy, Christina Crawford claims that people began seeing the ghost of her mother in 1989 in the home Joan Crawford owned from 1927 to 1960. We covered Joan Crawford as part of a Famous Feuds episode in July of 2021. The house allegedly began to experience random fires that mainly originated in the wall behind where Joan's bed used to be. These constant blazes became so common an occurrence that the Beverly Hills Fire Department once spent four days there trying to figure out why the house kept trying to burn itself down. They could not find a reason. The house has been exercised several times over the years, and when asked about the hauntings, Christina later said, quote, Every single family that has lived in that house has had horrible things happen. Illness, alcoholism, addictions, relationship problems, and now, evidently with the current owner, the walls are breaking out in flames. She went on to say, quote, It would not surprise me in the least if the quote-unquote haunting spirit that is in the house is Crawford. She was capable of real evil. Perhaps Mommy Dearest isn't a fan of the wire hangers in the closets. If you know, you know. Actually, it's in the opening of this podcast. I don't listen to it every week. Shh, don't tell the church. Thelma Todd's mysterious death was the subject of a May 2022 episode which dealt with the conspiracy theories surrounding her death. 
If you've forgotten, the blonde bombshell, also known as the hot toddy, once her career had cooled, opened a restaurant near the beach in Pacific Palisades with some business partners, one of whom she was having an affair with, and oops, he was married. Thelma was found dead in her garage, sitting in her car of carbon monoxide poisoning after returning home from a night of revelry. The official cause of death was accidental suicide because the car had been found running and nobody else was around. Why she'd done this is a mystery as she was allegedly aware of what could happen if she left a car running in an enclosed space. Decades of rumors and conspiracy theories have swirled since the actress's untimely demise, but to this day, no one knows for sure if the death was a tragic accident or a murder. The building that once housed her restaurant still stands and is currently used as an office rental facility based on the company's website. It's a very weird website. Over the years, several people that have worked in the building have reported seeing the ghostly image of a blonde woman descending the main staircase, which many believe to be Thelma, descending the steps to greet her diners even nearly 90 years after her death. People have also claimed to hear the sound of a phantom car in the garage of the house up the road from the restaurant where she met her untimely end. Thelma seems to have remained behind, perhaps waiting for someone to figure out exactly how she died. For nearly a century, Universal Pictures kept a set on a soundstage for fear of what might happen if it was removed. The legend originates within the walls of Universal's Soundstage 28, which was one of the oldest on the lot, and most of the horror films released by Universal in its heyday shot on this stage. Soundstage 28 was also the first soundstage, at least in Los Angeles, if not the world, to be made out of steel and concrete. We covered Universal's history back in November 2022. From 1924 to 2014, the theater set from the silent film version of Phantom of the Opera remained in Soundstage 28 because many people believed the set of the stage was haunted and nobody wanted to piss off a ghost. Also, since the sets were essentially built into the soundstage as the soundstage was being built, it would have been incredibly difficult to get them out, so maybe people just decided not to bother and made up a fun little story about it. But, you know, ghost is a more fun version of that. In 1925, an electrician working on the Phantom film fell from the catwalk to his death. After that, flickering lights and other electrical issues were reported on sets, which were ultimately blamed on the ghostly electrician, who they believed was playing pranks on his earthbound cohorts. Lon Chaney, the man of a thousand faces whom played the titular Phantom, died in 1930, and after that, Chaney's spirit was seen running along the catwalks above what was believed to have been his favorite stage. Sometimes, he was even seen wearing his old Phantom costume and makeup. Despite the soundstage having a permanent set in it, this never stopped things from being shot there, and films like Psycho from 1960, Jurassic Park from 93, and Muppets Most Wanted from 2014, which actually used the theater set quite extensively, were all shot on Soundstage 28. The Opera House set was removed from the stage before it was demolished in 2014 and is currently in storage with plans for it to be refurbished someday. As for the ghosts, well, I guess we'll find out once and for all what was haunted, the set or the stage. Rudolf Valentino was one of, if not the, first sex symbol to emerge out of American cinema, and we covered him in January of 2023. 
Women were obsessed with the so-called Latin lover. And in a world just figuring out how to deal with these newfound icons of a booming industry led to Valentino's face appearing on things like condoms. And his chic character is even the mascot of Hollywood High School. Rudolph's life ended suddenly when he died unexpectedly in 1926 at the age of 31. The cause of death was complications from punctured ulcers that were misdiagnosed as appendicitis. Since then, many report that Rudolph has yet to depart this earthly coil. The actor may have been considered a Hollywood icon, but this first alleged haunting of Rudolph's ghost takes us to the East Coast, where the actor shot several of his films for Paramount. The building that once held the famous Players Lasky Studio Commissary, that's Paramount's old name, when Rudolph was working for them, is currently a restaurant called Saks Place at Kaufman Astoria Studios. The restaurant is open to the public despite still being attached to a working studio. It is at this restaurant that people have claimed to spy Rudolph sitting at the bar sipping martinis. On the West Coast, because I guess in the afterlife you can be wherever you like, is Rudolph's Benedict Canyon dream home he christened Falcon Lair that he also allegedly haunts. Since his death, Rudolph has been seen at Falcon Lair by multiple owners over the years, starting almost immediately after his death. Caretakers for the property claim to hear phantom footsteps, see doorknobs turn, doors open and close by themselves, and even see Rudolph himself peering from a second-story window. The last person to publicly claim to see the movie star was tobacco heir Doris Duke and her butler, both of whom claimed to have seen Rudolph on multiple occasions from the 1950s to the 1980s. The first time they saw him, he was reportedly wearing his horse riding outfit, which makes sense, as any of this does, as just down the hill from the house once stood the horse stables. Rudolph's ghost had also been seen down there, petting and tending to the still-living horses. A stable hand claimed to walk in on the departed Latin lover carrying about these duties and quit on the spot. Even after the stables were gone, people still reported seeing Rudolph, even sometimes being accompanied by a phantom horse. After the tobacco heiress passed away in 1993, and because nothing is sacred in Tinseltown, the house was torn down in 2006. Since then, nobody has publicly claimed to see Rudolph Valentino wandering the land that once held his beloved home. But don't worry, Rudolph Valentino has plenty of other places to go. The corner of Hollywood and Highland, which is now home to a giant mall-slash-theater-slash-Oscars venue, was once the location of a much smaller Hollywood hotel. It is at this hotel that, after Rudolph's death, women that stayed in room 264 would report getting a phantom smooch from the actor's ghost. This same haunting has also been reported at a beach house in Oxnard that the actor stayed in while shooting The Sheik, and room 210 at the Santa Maria Hotel in Santa Maria that Rudolph also frequented. A way creepier version of the Valentino ghost kisses allegedly took place in 1988 at yet another site that was alleged to be a haunt of the actors while he was alive. An apartment building at the time of this story, the building is now on the Paramount lot and in Rudolph's day was a speakeasy the actor was quite fond of. Anyway, the story goes that a woman heard someone else in the room with her breathing, which was concerning since she thought she was alone. Then someone just jumped into bed with her. She turned on the lights only to find out that she was, in fact, alone. Was it the Latin lover being a spectral sexual predator? Who's to say? 
Oh, and fun fact before we wrap this up, the iconic Paramount gates were constructed specifically to keep out Rudolph Valentino's fans, but he died before the construction was complete, so they were never used for what they had been built for. As you can see, Hollywood is teeming with spirits of all sorts, whether it be the ghosts we cover today, the broken dreams of thousands who tried to become stars, and the liquor many of them drowned their sorrows in, forever echoing through the canyons, the sound stages, and the lonely streets of Hollywood. I'm recording this at night, and I was recording in the dark, and I have definitely spooked myself a little bit, not gonna lie. Hopefully you did not just listen to this episode in the dark. This was a mistake. that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media, where I also post photos for each episode at Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I've got a letterbox account, which features my watch lists, film diary, and recommended viewing for this episode. You can check it out at the link in the show notes. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got the buy me a coffee, which allows me to buy coffee and support my caffeine habit while I write or edit or just do podcast stuff. Um, obviously no coffee tonight. It is almost 10 o'clock at night. Um, I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. Next week, we are not doing a hodgepodge episode unless I can't find a lot of information on this, but I'm pretty sure I will, as we're looking into the incredibly famous conspiracy theory, which involves the fact that America never went to the moon and that director Stanley Kubrick directed the sequence that was beamed into millions of televisions on July 20th, 1969. That's right. We're discerning fact from fiction when it comes to the moon landing and the alleged Kubrick cover-up. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, that's a wrap.